the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We live in a world full of data about everything, including ourselves. But how do we sort through all of that data to know which is true and which isn't? To know whether we are uncovering the world around us with all that information or just further mystifying it. Economist Tim Harford has a new book called The Data Detective, and he'll join us today to talk about how we make sense of all the data that come our way. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Today and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. How do we get closer to uncovering truth? This is a question that journalists, of course, ask every day. But it's also a question that's really important to everyone else. Police officers and teachers and concerned citizens are all tasked with trying to understand what's going on around them, and to act on truth. Why are prices increasing? Why are bridges collapsing? Why are certain schools funded with less money than others? There have always been a lot of these kinds of questions that demand the public's attention. But the difference today is that there are more data available about all of these things than ever before. And maybe conversely, all of that data make it even more difficult to discern what's true and what's not. How do you know that what you're reading is true, verifiably true? Where did it come from? Who did the work to make sure that it is true? And even more difficult are the people who are trying right now to make it even harder to understand the world. Take Steve Bannon, chief strategist to former President Donald Trump, who made it his explicit goal to, quote, flood the zone with false information. He's not alone. There are a lot of people out there right now who are intentionally trying to mislead by telling lies, by making up data. And what they intend to do is create a chaotic information ecosystem. It makes it harder to pay attention to the news and more challenging to know what is going on in our world. In other words, even as there are more and more and more bits of information available, it's actually getting harder and harder to parse truths from falsehoods, especially in places like the internet. So how do we trust the information that crosses our path? How do we know that our data is produced with integrity and honesty? British journalist and economist Tim Harford has done a lot of work trying to discern truth and follow knowledge down its, seem, down its seemingly endless rabbit hole. In other words, where does all of this come from and how do we sort through it to determine what's true and what's not? He does that really well in his latest book, The Data Detective, and Tim Harford joins us now to talk about it. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks very much, Stephen. It's great to be on the show. Yeah. So this is a book on statistics and rationality, but it starts in a kind of unexpected way. It talks about emotions. So tell me why you begin by warning people to be skeptical of things that pull their emotions in particular directions. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure you've noticed, Stephen, but people tend to have feelings about things and, and their feelings really influence what they trust and what they don't trust. 
uh, I begin the book with a story of, a, of an art forgery that should never have fooled the experts, but fooled the experts because the experts really wanted to believe that it was a genuine art piece. And, and, and the reason that I started a book about statistics with a story about art is to emphasize the centrality of our emotions. We can fool ourselves into believing or disbelieving all sorts of things, just because we really want them to be true or, or we really want them not to be true. And you can be one of the world's leading experts and you can still make this mistake. And, and so and the, the book contains 10 rules of thumb, if you like, to, to think more clearly about the world and think more clearly about statistics. But the, the first rule of thumb is just to notice how you're feeling when you, you hear a headline on the radio, on the TV, you read it in a newspaper or you see something on social media. The, just the first question you should ask is, how is this making me feel? Am I feeling angry? Um, do I feel scorn, bitterness, vindication? Oh, this proves I was right. I can go and tell somebody I was right. Look at this headline. Any emotion that you're feeling is, is making you dumber. And of course, we all have emotions. I have emotions. We all have emotions. But just to, just to take a couple of seconds to notice that response and go, oh, interesting. This really seems to have triggered some powerful reaction in me. And then you can go back and have a second look. And you, you may see things differently after you've become aware of your own emotional reaction. Hmm. So those emotions, of course, are not about the data itself. In other words, that's not about whether something is true or not. That's about the culture, I guess, that we're living in at the time that we're living in. And the charge, I guess, that, uh, that, that exists around some of the questions that we are relying on data to explain for us. I, I, I feel like that's a difference too right now. In addition to there being more data available than ever before, we're also more invested in the conclusions that we might make from that data because we are so worked up about so many different things. Yeah, and, and I, it feels like this is a difference from past times. I don't know if it really is. It feels different. And maybe it's to do with the fact that we've got a new media environment with, um, with specialized TV news channels that are more polarized than before, with social media, um, you know, talk radio, the shock jocks. It, it seems that there's a, um, there's a bonus for getting people angry. Uh, that's engagement, right? People are engaged. Uh, it just doesn't matter how they're engaged. That there's a there's a bonus for for triggering this kind of emotional reaction, and so people try to do it. Uh, I certainly notice it. I, you know, I've I've got a couple of hundred thousand followers on Twitter, and I tend to tweet um, stuff that's not very emotional because it's not it's not my scene, hmm. and no one ever retweets it. So to, I'm thinking two hundred thousand people in principle <laughs> are following me. No, like no one's no one's retweeting this, and, that, and that's just fine. But every now and then, I'll hit a nerve, and then you suddenly see like, oh, two thousand people have retweeted this thing. So suddenly people are interested. Um, and it's not because it's the best tweet or the most informative tweet. It's because it's the tweet that emotionally engages people. And I'm mm -hmm. not really, I'm not sure that we should be rewarding that behavior, but, but, you know, we do, that's where we are. Yeah. And so that tension that exists between that emotional instinct and the overwhelming amount of data that's out there, uh, I guess, is the central central point of of some of what you're talking about here in in the book, which is how to downplay one side of that equation, the the, the emotion, and concentrate more on the value and the veracity of the other the, the data. Um, let's first talk about how how we even contend with the amount of data that are out there. Sometimes I feel like it's a little like, you know, drinking from a fire hose. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche, but uh, th there is so much out there that I think for a lot of people, it's hard to even begin to understand what's a rational way to process it and then to decide how to make sure that it's true. Yeah, 
Yeah, actually, I, one suggestion I would have is start with a question rather than starting with the data. I mean, one of the, the principles of the book is to be more curious and just try to, to use numbers to try to understand the world rather than to try to win some argument with somebody on, on Twitter or Facebook. But um, that means starting with a question. And it's funny, it feels like we're drowning in data. It feels like the graphs and the percentages and so on, they're just flying around. But when you actually start asking specific questions, you very often go, oh, we actually don't have the numbers that we would really want. So just to give you a, a really specific example, um, there was a, a big kind of controversy here in the UK last week, but I think it the, you'll be having the same arguments in the US, I'm sure, about inflation. And uh, is inflation higher for low-income households or not? Mm -hmm. Um and it might be because low-income households are buying different things to the average household, and they're buying different things to the high-income households. So maybe, maybe those things are going up in price, potatoes, milk, bread. Maybe they're going up in price more than, than the typical product in, across the whole economy. If you, if you actually go, okay, well, let's go and find out, what you will discover is the Bureau of Labor Statistics, who assembles the inflation statistics, they, the data they gather are not built to answer that question. I mean, you can kind of fiddle around and you can do some analysis and you can try, but actually they, they're not measuring the price of the cheapest rice and the cheapest spaghetti and, and, and that sort of thing. They're, they're trying to measure the middle of the market, like the, mm -hmm. the stuff that the typical consumer buys. So in this case, you start with a question, you think you're drowning in data, you realize we don't have the data at all. There are questions that we... As a society, we've kind of decided we're fine with not knowing the answer to this question, which is in <laughs> itself interesting. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk about the problem that we have with data that are not true um, and yeah. either not true because uh, of carelessness or, or an accident versus not true because of intentional efforts uh, to deceive, it seems to me that that you've got this kind of twin, twin-sided uh, issue there with, with uh, you know the why of what's true and not. But 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 first, just talk about the amount of data that aren't true that are that are out there and how dangerous that is. Yeah, and there's there's another danger, by the way, which is that you don't believe the data that are true. So that's, yeah, that's right. always something that's to remember. Right. Like you, that's one of the, you mentioned Steve Bannon. One of the reasons he wanted to flood the, uh, the the media ecosystem with false information. He didn't use the phrase false information. He used a four letter word instead. But we won't. He did the radio. <laughs> um, the, the reason he wanted to, to flood kind of the the media ecosystem with false information is is not just. In fact, I would say not only to get people to believe stuff that wasn't true. It was to to get people to disbelieve stuff that was true, because you see so much stuff that isn't true that you start you start going, well, I don't know, none of it's true. I don't have to mm -hmm. believe any of it, uh, and that and that's really important when you when you look at, for example, the when you look at the conspiracy theorists, when you look at the uh, what happened in the Capitol, the beginning of of twenty twenty one, the sixth of January. Um, that's not a, that's not so much about people um, believing. Uh, it's about people disbelieving. It's about mm -hmm. who and what people are willing to disbelieve. I'll disbelieve the judiciary. I'll disbelieve the New York Times. I'm going to disbelieve. So, so disbelief is indiscriminate disbelief is as damaging as, as indiscriminate belief. But, but to, to come to this sort of this idea of all the false information, I think I think the basic principle is to is to ask yourself when you see a, a number after you've examined your emotional response and you've said, okay, how how's this making it, me, me feel? just to ask some really basic questions about it. Like, where, where does it come from? Is it just some screenshot on social media or is there an actual link that goes to an actual place? I mean, just saying, oh, this comes from some source doesn't mean anything. Like, is there a link? Can I go and have a look? And then is this the kind of source that I might actually want to take seriously? Has it got resources behind it? Is it reasonably independent? Um, but also, not just where did this number come from, but does this number say what I think it says? Hmm. It, it's, a, it's astonishing how often 
um, people will make statements that are true, but completely misleading. And they're misleading because we think the statement is about one thing, but it's about something else. So just to, I mean, just, just to, to um, the, the news, the headlines mentioned the shooting at the uh, Oxford High School. Um, whenever something like that happens, the um, media reporting will run with how, how many gun deaths are there in the US mm -hmm. every year. Um, and that's not obviously that's not an obviously relevant number because we're actually talking about a mass shooting, it, and and the number of gun deaths is not the same as the number of people who get shot um, in these mass shooting in incidents. And in fact, the number of gun deaths is not even the number of people who are who are murdered with a gun, because many of those deaths are in fact suicide. So, so I, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about gun death. I'm just saying if you present a number of, if you talk about gun deaths in the same context as a school shooting, people mix the two things together and they're not the same thing. You're measuring two different things. You're counting two different things. And I think if we're going to think clearly about what the policy implications might be, you want to understand what is actually being measured, what's mm. being counted. We, mm. we very quickly fool ourselves with these things. We, we think one thing is being measured and actually it's not. Yeah. I'm talking with uh, Tim Harford. He's an economist who has a new book uh, that is titled The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. Uh, the conversation we're having is about how we sort through all the data that uh, are out there right now and figure out which are true and which are not. What is the, the kind of process that we should be going through to try to make sure that we're being told the truth and that we're acting uh, on that truth. Uh, we'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. How do you come to know that things are true or not true? How many sources do you reference before you conclude a particular fact or truth? Uh, and are there ways in which you check your own biases, for instance, before you investigate a particular truth? Do you ask yourself whether you're looking for a specific answer or whether you're going into it actually just looking to find out what the answer is? Uh, also, give us a sense of how you're using social media to uncover important information. Is that something that you're relying on or is that something that you've kind of become tired of because you're finding false information there too often? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and put comments there and uh, we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, before we get to our listeners, Tim, I want to talk about the, the urgency of this question uh, around the pandemic. And I, and, and I think that the pandemic is uh, a, a good kind of case study in many of the different things that you're talking about here in the book, many of the different dynamics that, that have to do with how we discern truth. Uh, the, the, the question of emotional bias is very strong there because uh, this was a deadly pandemic. Lots of people were losing their lives as we were trying to figure out what was true and what, what wasn't. Um, there's also, of course, a, a, a political bent to, to some of the production of, of information about, about the virus. Uh, people who had um, non-health goals uh, that they wanted to serve by producing certain kinds of information. Um, and then, of course, there are just outright lies that have been told about um, not just the virus, but, but, but also about the restrictions and, and the reactions. Um, so, so literally, in this case, getting the data right were, was a, a matter of life and death. Uh, how well, I guess, as a, as a people, uh, did we do that? How well did our um, did that play out, f given all of the all of the tensions that you're talking about here in your book? I think it's an example of some of the best and the worst uses of data. And that the when coronavirus was first reported, when the news finally came out of of China, 
uh, that there was this new respiratory virus. That was the moment when data really started to show how valuable it is. And one of the one of the things I'm trying to get people to think about in the book, in the data detective, is that this is not just about spotting liars. It's also about discerning the truth. Truth is important. I'm, I'm really glad that in your introduction to this conversation, you talked about the truth, how important the truth is. You think about this virus. Well, what is the truth? What are the truths that we're trying to determine? So number one, um, how fast is it spreading? Uh, number two, under what conditions does it spread? Number three, how dangerous is it? How many people is it hurting? How many people is it killing? Uh, number four, who's most at risk? Is it to do with age? Is it to do with lifestyle? Is it some genetic condition? Is it something else? Um, and those sorts of questions are absolutely fundamental. And then, wh uh, where is it now? Who is infected now? And, and can, we, can we make judgments about where it's going to spread next? Some of those questions we, we were able to answer really quickly was very impressive. So, so, for example, how dangerous it was. We got that pretty early on. And also, who was most at risk? It turns out it's to do with age, very closely connected with age, um, in a way that's not true for, for some other pathogens. Like flu you know, kills young people if they're not vaccinated, but mm -hmm. um, COVID very rarely does. All of these questions, you, we started with a total information vacuum. We know nothing. And there's this amazing work, I would say almost heroic work, being done by epidemiologists, public health officials, virologists, desperately trying to generate answers to these questions. And then we move on to the next questions, which are, uh, well, we've got some possible cures and treatments, vaccines. Are they safe? Do they work? And again, there's, there's a, a structured process of trying to generate data there. This is amazing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's astonishing. I, we, we talk about the miracle of the vaccines and how well the vaccines work and how quickly they were developed. And that's all true. But it, this is also a statistical miracle, a data miracle. Mm -hmm. To be set alongside that, you have right from the start, uh, outright nonsense, conspiracy theories, but also a lot of very manipulative presentation of data that leads people to draw uh, the, the wrong conclusions. And I think it's deliberately designed to invite people to, to draw the wrong conclusions or systematically misrepresenting um, what scientists are saying. Um, so just to, to give you an example, um, there were data, data that came out of the UK. The UK has got some very good data in, in, on the pandemic, but it, it did the rounds in the US. I think Joe Rogan uh, picked it up on his podcast. And um, this data seemed to suggest that um, you know, people were actually uh, more at risk uh, if, they were be, if they were vaccinated than, than unvaccinated. Mm -hmm. um, and that just seemed bizarre. Like, how can that be? How can the vaccine actually be doing harm? But when, you, when you looked at the data, this was just the public health authorities have been a bit careless in the way they presented it. At the time, all the people who were vaccinated were really old because we vaccinated the elderly first. And all the people who were unvaccinated were young. And we know that risk is massively correlated with being older. So you look at this without adjusting for age, you just go, oh, it seems that, you know, the vaccinated population is still going to hospital and the unvaccinated population's fine. But the unvaccinated population, their average age was, I don't know, 21. And the, the age of the vaccinated population on average was, I think about 50. Of course, they're gonna have different outcomes. So you see these really confused, um, mistaken, sometimes deliberately manipulated presentations of data mm -hmm. alongside heroic work, brilliant work. So that's why I say it's the best and the worst. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Tim Harford about uh, data and truth. And we're going to get going on the phones. Call and tell us uh, what your prize is for discerning what's true and what's not right now as there are more data available about almost everything than ever before and when we have some really urgent questions to answer that we need data in order to come up with the, the truth. Uh, what's your process for determining truth, for instance, about the pandemic? Where are you getting information about 
COVID-19 and the restrictions and the vaccines that you trust? Uh, what are some places that you don't trust where you found misinformation? What's the role of the media in all of this? Do you trust media to tell you the truth, not just about the pandemic, but about all of the things that we worry about and talk about? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's uh, 313-577-1019. We'll get to Brian in Dearborn next. Uh, you should join him by calling in. Also, go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and we can include you in the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest this hour is economist Tim Harford. He has a new book called The Data Detective, 10 Easy Rules to Make Sense of Statistics. We're talking about how we all try to make sense of statistics, uh, the data that are out there, so much information is available these days in so many different ways on so many different mediums. How do we sort through it all to find truth? How do we sort through it all to know that the things that we're acting on uh, are are true? Um, give us a call and join the conversation. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there and tell us what your process looks like for sorting through uh, all of these things. I want to read a couple of social media comments. Uh, Aaron on Twitter says, taking into consideration the source is crucial for me. Also, just basic questioning. You don't have to be Woodward or Bernstein to find out if something doesn't pass the smell test. And a lot of misinformation is designed to falter when examined closer. Um, uh, Tim, I want to I want to start there with you. This question of questioning, you talked a little uh, about that, but that that's kind of at the heart of some of your rules here um, uh, for for determining what what's true and what's not. That, that's absolutely right. And the questions are not that complicated. You're right. You don't need to be Woodward or Bernstein, and you don't need to be Einstein either. You don't need to be, uh, you know, a genius mathematician, statistician. Uh, to ask straightforward questions. So we already talked about um, the question of, well, how do I feel? Am I having an emotional reaction? Am I, am I on the way to fooling myself? And the, this other question of, well, what is this actually counting? What, are we, what, what in fact are we measuring here? What's the, what's the definition involved? The number seems impressive, but what is the number actually referring to? So another question that people can ask is, um, is it a big number or a small number? Like, is, is it going up or down? These are, these are simple questions about context. But very often, uh, numbers are stripped of context. So you see a tweet, it's a soundbite in a presidential debate or a candidate speech or a headline, and uh, th th you don't necessarily have the context to understand whether the number should worry you or not. I mean, a lot of data series, you know, they bounce up and down, and if you pick... You know, two particular points, you can say, oh, it's up 15% over the last two years, or oh, it's down 20% over the last six years. And well, and the answer is, well, it's it goes up and down, and maybe there's nothing really here to worry about. So, so asking, is it going up or down? Asking what it means, asking whether it's a big number. These are things that, you know, should be fairly straightforward. Um, I, I advocate in the book, the idea of having uh, landmark numbers. So a landmark number is, is uh, something you can just carry in your head that helps you make useful comparisons. So for example, um, the population of the US is, is about um, 330 uh, million people. So if somebody says, oh, I'm going to spend a billion dollars, you go, okay, that's $3 a person. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the maths aren't that complicated. You could do it on a calculator or your phone, or, or you could often do it in your head, and you can tell. Okay, three dollars a person for every person in the U.S. Okay, that's I know how much that is. That's you know, it's a Starbucks coffee for everyone. Um, that's a billion dollars. Um, 
having those kind of those sorts of comparisons in your head really um, help make sense of of, uh, of the data. I mean, there's one one um, claim that occasionally goes around is um, that uh, four million women are killed every year by the, by their partners in the US. Um, and clearly, the intimate partner violence is a huge problem. And because people feel it's a huge problem, they share that number. But then when you think about it, you go, what you're telling me that, like, so 1% of all the people in the US, so so 2% of all the women in the US are murdered every year by their partners. That can't, that can't possibly be true. There wouldn't be anybody left. <laughs> that must be false. But you have to do that little bit of work and go, no, does that number add up? Does that does that four million match my knowledge of what the American population actually is? Uh, can, you know, can it possibly make sense or not? Um, and as I say, you don't need to be Einstein. You just need to take a, a moment, uh, some simple sums, and you you can figure out whether a number is worth taking seriously or or it isn't. Yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Melissa in Metro Detroit. Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Um, excuse Hi. me. Hello to your guest. Right. So um, when I hear uh, data or uh, a conclusion that they're proffering to me, I try to wonder, are they trying to inform me with the truth or are they trying to influence me um, with their ego or the group they represent's ego, um, uh, which is, you know, their unawareness of um, of of the truth. Hmm. So, uh, Melissa, that's a great question. And uh, so, uh, Tim, I wonder if you can talk just a little about, I mean, we were talking about the emotional bias that we mm-hmm. might bring to uh, a situation where we're trying to get information about something. Uh, what Melissa's talking about is the suspicion we might have about the person producing the information. Uh, and, and and whether that should lead us to, to skepticism. I think that's harder to know in a lot of cases because, again, there's so much information out there and it's hard for any of us to know exactly who uh, is, is, is generating much of it. But but it, it also seems like what Melissa is talking about is pretty important that if, if you can identify who it is and, and assign some bias to them, then that should inform your process too. I think so. I mean, there's, there's the motives of people are important and very often our motives are not to seek the truth. I mean, this is true even as individuals. We like to think we're all seeking the truth, but often you know, we're seeking social approval. We want to fit in with our friends. We want to be seen to say the right things. Um, we wouldn't be human if we cared only about the truth and nothing else. And that's true for the people who are trying to influence us as well. So I mean, a rule of thumb, I would say, is that, um, you know, we'd listen to a politician trying to state what they believe in and what their priorities are. But the moment they're trying to deliver a statistical justification of their record or a statistical attack on an opponent's record, at that point you go, I could probably get a better, more independent, more balanced view of whether you know this policy record is working or not i mean i'm not somebody who who i know is biased even if i'm on their side i know they're biased so i want to seek out some sort of independent source of information and and the great thing is that there is a lot of independent information around though you know the scientists there are independent think tanks um try to be quite balanced quite centrist so you could always look for that um nobody is ever completely neutral Nobody is ever completely independent and nobody is ever pursuing the truth and nothing else. But it's not that hard to figure out where someone is coming from and and get a sense of it. And if you pause for a couple of seconds and have a think about it, very often you can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that's that's something worth doing. So so listening to you answer Melissa's question also makes me think about the value of comparison and the comparative process. In other words, if you're trying to find the truth about something, it, it makes sense to go to more than one source and compare 
the sources of that, that, that information, but also compare the information itself, and that that's an important kind of deductive skill to have when you're trying to find the truth as well. Being able to say, I've seen this now in many different places, and that suggests perhaps uh, more veracity than if I'd only seen it in one place. I've seen it come I, I, from I, yeah. these people, and and I know that uh, you know I, I know who they are, so so um, so I'm going to believe it. Absolutely, and of course, people will have their own views about the kinds of sources they believe. So, you know, there are certain um, conspiracy theorists who who would say, well, the very fact that a a respected media source is saying this is reason to distrust it. Oh, right. the CDC is saying it. Oh, the FBI is saying it. Well, of course, it must be a lie. And, you know, there you go. At, le- at least in that case, you have somebody with a consistent view of the media ecosystem. I, and I don't, I don't share that view, but at least there is some logic to it. There's a view as to, you know, the kinds of sources you trust. Um, and we can all, I think, make our decisions about the kinds of sources we want to trust. Uh, the, the interesting thing is, is some of the research that psychologists have been doing on this is, that very often we can we can detect the truth. We just don't bother to try because everything's happening so fast and the truth is not a priority. We just decide to retweet something or share something on social media. Or we see something on the TV and we immediately turn to a friend or a spouse. And we haven't, we haven't thought for a moment as to whether it's true. And so there are some experiments where you show people with quite strong partisan views, you know, quite strong right or left-leaning views, you show them certain um, uh, fake headlines and true headlines, and you ask, well, would you share this? Would you share that one? Oh, there are these uh, terrorists with suicide vests showing up at the Mexican border, says you know, says this guy on Facebook, would you share that? You ask people whether they'd share the stuff. And generally what people would do is they share the stuff they tend to sympathize with. But if instead you first ask, um, here's a headline, do you think it's true? So you get them, you get them to stop for a moment and just think about some, whether a headline is true. And then you show them a whole bunch of stories, true and false, and ask them whether they'd share it. At that point, having been just kind of nudged to think about the truth, people are much more discriminating. And they'll say, oh, well, I kind of have some sympathy with this, sto- this story about the terrorists with suicide vests showing up at the Mexican border, but actually now... Now you've got me to think about whether it's true. It doesn't sound like it is true. Actually, that doesn't sound like the way that terrorists would operate, and I actually don't believe it, and I won't share it. So you can nudge people to think a little bit about the truth, and we can do it. This is, the, this is one of the messages of the book. We can do it. But we have to want to try. We have to be willing to slow down, notice our emotions, and, and actually try. And if we try, very often we can succeed. Mm. Let's go to the phones again here. Brian in Dearborn. What's on your mind, Brian? Hi, Steve. Um, so I've, um, I've worked in both um, public relations and journalism, and I'm a really big advocate for anybody considering either career to uh, study statistical reasoning, to take a few classes while they're in college in applied statistics, because so much of the discussion these days is not a competition of ideas, but a competition of facts, of statistical facts and statistical numbers. And I think one of the the reasons why there has been a a bit less enthusiasm for journalists and, and popular media these days is because we're not always able to give them the information that they really need to mm-hmm. understand the difference between two competing arguments based off statistics. And so more and more, I think we're thrust in this role of really having to be arbiters of not just logical reasoning, but mathematical reasoning. And I want to give you a really simple example. Um, Back in 2015, I was writing for the Huffington Post, and there was a police shooting in my hometown of Dearborn. And um, activists began using... Uh, statistics from 2012 about the number of African Americans that had been pulled over or arrested by Dearborn police. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that the number was this huge number. I mean, it it, it was definitely an outlier compared to the other ones. 
And recognizing that it was an outlier, I investigated. And I found out that that was actually a year where Dearborn police had gotten into an agreement with the city of Detroit to actually help police large sections of Detroit uh, along the border. So it was almost as if Dearborn police were had added, you know, 60,000 African-American citizens to the city. But the statistics that were being cited were comparing it just to the actual residents of Dearborn. Of Dearborn. So yeah. this yeah. is an opportunity where providing context, recognizing an outlier, helped kind of moderate that discussion so that, you know, we're not picking sides, but we're making sure that the reader has everything they need to know to understand the difference. Because I think yeah. when we just are filled with competing statistics and there's no... There's no referee in the media. It leads to the despair of, well, they're all lying or, well, they're all, <laughs> right. they all have statistics and it's all, you know, nonsense. And, and that's really our job to come in and provide that extra information and to recognize those trends. Yeah. Yeah. Brian, I, I love that, uh, that you called uh, and shared that. And, and Tim, we haven't talked too much about the, the media's role, but, but that's a great example of, the, the the necessity to, to as you say to question and then uh, you know find out the truth and and in Brian's case you know disseminate it so that so that people can believe yeah it, it's a great example and it, it's an example of where you need to answer the you need to ask a couple of questions you you look at something you say oh the the, the number seems odd what's going on is the number wrong no the number's not wrong but the number isn't showing you what you think it shows you. It's showing you a different, you know, a different situation than the situation you assumed you were looking at. Um, and that requires a certain amount of statistical confidence. And I think that, but it's not, again, it's not like a super complex thing. It's not like you have to get deep into chi-squared tests and statistical significance and Bayesian reasoning and all this complex stuff. What Brian was doing was just going, hmm, number seems strange. I should make a couple of calls, check some websites, figure out what's going on. And, and that confidence is really important. And we, journalists need it. And I think citizens need it as well. Because too, too often we just say to ourselves, oh, I'm not going to believe any of these statistics. They're all, they're all just, it's all fake news. I don't believe any of it. They're just trying to fool me. Uh, and the most popular book ever published about statistics was called How to Lie with Statistics. And it's all about misinformation. But we would never accept the argument that you can't you can't ever believe words because people sometimes lie with words and you're like you should just avoid words don't listen to any words I mean, we would say that was absurd of course you need to listen to words and listen to what people are saying and you need to make a judgment using everything all of your experience you need to make a judgment as to whether these things are true or false but when it comes to statistics we often feel incapable of making that judgment mm -hmm. so i fully endorse brian's idea of of journalists taking some basic statistics classes. I would endorse sure. the idea of citizens reading The Data Detective or other good books about numbers. Because as I say, it's important, but it's not its not as technical as people often think to ask the right questions. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about truth and data and how we sort through data to find truth. I want to continue to hear from you as well. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll hear from Ray in Auburn Hills next. We also have a number of social media comments still to get to. You can go to Facebook or Twitter for your comments there, and we'll try to include them in the conversation as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. My guest is Tim Harford, an economist, award-winning columnist and broadcaster who is the author of a new book, 
the data, de- the data detective, 10 easy rules to make sense of t- statistics. We're talking about truth-seeking uh, through all the information that is, uh, that's out there right now and figuring out what to believe and what not, what to act on and what not. Give us a call, 313-577-1019 to join the conversation or go to social media and put comments there. Zach on Twitter says, information, depth, and details are key for me. I prefer a Fauci interview on the journal or on WDET over a cable news chyron. The information is sometimes lost in translation with the latter. Uh, Glenn on Twitter says, for me, some of it comes down to background. I studied history and worked in healthcare with a lot of data. The portion of the population who are trained to do research is such a small subset, and that shows in our discourse. Misinformation is free. Good info is expensive. Uh, I want to go back to the phones here and to Ray in Auburn Hills. Ray, what's on your mind? Yes, sir. Thanks for taking my call. That's a Mm -hmm. good conversation today. Um, as As an IT guy, I have a tendency to not believe a lot of what's sent to me. Obviously, spam, things like that. But with the news, um, I think we need to be especially um, uh, critical in examining that. I tend to be a non-believer in a lot of things um, until I can validate it. So I tend to listen more to uh, news sources like, like NPR, like PBS, and take a look at information on the wire services like AP, um, Reuters, et cetera, because they focus more on the facts. Um, I don't think that some of the cable news networks did any services by uh, providing, by, by going away from a lost leader type of philosophy with the news mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. your news and opinion tend to be blended and it's hard to um, differentiate sometimes and people treat opinion as news. So, but I tend to just look at when I get a, a fact, I try to find other sources, try to look at, uh, like has been suggested, try to dive into it a little bit more so that I can make up my own mind based on, yeah. on what you said. It's just, how does it feel to me? Is it seem incredulous or, or does it seem within the realm of possibility? So, yeah. Ray, I, I'm, I'm glad you called and, and shared that uh, that insight and, and that approach. Uh, Tim, I, I do want to talk a little more about cable news and social media, which I think are two, um, two sources of information that have really changed the body of information that's, that's out there. Cable news has changed itself dramatically over the last uh, 10 or 15 years, and maybe because of the influence of social media, which has really grown uh, to be such a, a big part of our information flow in the last uh, 10 years, they, they both get criticized a lot for not misinformation. Um, I think it's, it's, it's non-contextual information. I think it's more the, the, the complaint that, um, that it's hard to discern what's true because they're really not telling you a whole lot to begin with, and you're not given the, 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 the context to try to figure out whether it's true. Yeah, I think they, they, you're absolutely right to point to context. Actually, before I went to that, I wanted to reply to Ray because I love uh-huh. the, the, the analogy of the spam filter. Because if you've ever looked in your spam uh, folder, you find all <laughs> kinds of, of junk in there. But every now and then you find an important message as well. And mm-hmm. one of the, the tricks is you don't want to turn the spam filter up too much and send real emails to spam. You don't want to have it turned down too much and just get all the spam in your inbox. And that we really face the same problem with consuming news. You don't want to disbelieve everything. That's just, that's as bad as, as uh, believing everything. Um, so yeah, I just love that idea from Ray. Uh, on, on context, you're absolutely right. Social media, people worry about you know, social media being a bubble, but actually on social media, you're often exposed to opposing views. That's why people find social media kind of stressful, because there's people arguing with them all the time. But what that argument often lacks is context. And, and I think cable TV often lacks context. Um, one of the ways to get context is to consume new, slower sources of news, as well as your you know your morning news, obviously your morning news. Uh, Radio is is important, 
but maybe read a weekly magazine or here's a radical idea, a book from time to time. They're going to give you much more context. They're going to give you a very different perspective. And once you have the context, you can actually start thinking critically about the things to disbelieve and, and the things to believe. Okay, Tim Harford, uh, it was really great to have you here with us to talk about uh, information and truth and, and how to find it. And congratulations on the book, which is a wonderful read. Thanks so much for being here with us. It's really kind of you to invite me on the show. Thanks for the great conversation. Yeah, see you next time. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins is going to join to talk about this Canadian trucker protest that is blocking traffic on the Detroit-Windsor border. Uh, really interesting uh, set of uh, occurrences there and reactions that I think are going to reverberate for quite some time here in our community. Detroit Today is produced by Jake Neer and Sam Corey. The program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.